Hey, welcome to ACF Church, and we're so glad that you're with us watching this message online. And our hope is that it would encourage you to be more like Jesus and walk closely with Him as an apprentice of Christ. And our hope is to give away all of these resources for free as much as possible. It takes a lot of time and energy and people to make that happen. And if you'd like to support the mission of God financially for ACF Church, you can go to acfak.org and you can give there. Now enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, welcome today. We are in a series called Campfire Stories, and this has been a conversation through the stories that Jesus told. He was a master storyteller and had this incredible ability to capture the attention of his audience and then throughout the story to make a very important point about how his kingdom works and who we are as people and also who he is as the Messiah in the flesh. And so uh, we are continuing on through that conversation today. And today's discussion is called Faith for Doubters. I don't know if you relate to that, but I'll tell you, I have had a lot of doubts in my life. If you know me well, I question everything. I tend to see the holes in things, and, and honestly, I, I, I trend towards cynicism, which isn't something that I really want to brag about, uh, but, it, but it keeps me, honestly, from seeing things for how they are, and, and sometimes even seeing the good in the situations that I find myself in. And so what does it look like to have faith as a doubter, is it even possible to be somebody who is faithful, to be somebody who is, uh, is saved, is in the hands of God, and also be somebody who honestly has doubts about life, doubts about themselves, and even doubts in God? So earlier this week, I was on a phone call. I actually got an email invitation to get on a call with the governor of the state of Alaska. And this is the second call I've been on since COVID-19. And it's, it's a group call to just talk with the faith leaders of Alaska. That's what the subject line of the email said, an invitation to the faith community and the faith leaders of 
Alaska. And one of the things that that kind of says to me is that there's the faith community and then there's the non-faith community. And I don't know where you might find yourself in that today. Maybe you're part of the faith community. You would say, I've got lots of faith. Or maybe your faith is very small and you would say, maybe you even struggle believing in God at all. But I want to start off by making a really important statement as we get into this conversation. And it's this, we are all extremely faithful people. I don't know if you know this, but you are an extremely faithful person. And throughout this journey through COVID-19, what's actually happening is, is our faith is being revealed, right? I mean, many of you, of you would think that our faith is being challenged through COVID-19, but actually our faith is being revealed through COVID-19. What you put your faith in, you put your time and energy into, right? You're very faithful to certain things in your life, right? Like when COVID started, nobody had to tell me to eat a lot of snacks. I'm faithful to eating chips and and, and to eating things that are not good for me, right? Uh, Nobody had to tell me to watch a little more Netflix because I'm faithful to watching TV. It's a natural thing for me. Nobody actually had to tell me to get angry with my kids and frustrated with the people in my house as I'm, you know, social distancing and a little bit quarantined, right? That's just something I naturally do. Sometimes I'm faithful to my own personal tendencies, right? And I want to start with saying this, that what you're faithful to, actually, it, it has power over you. And you may not realize it, but you invest your life into those things, and those things end up having a certain power over you. And so the question is, what do you really put your faith in today? It's really seen through the way you live. It's seen through the way you you pour your energy and your resources and your time out. What you invest in is what you are faithful to. It's what your faith is ultimately in. You know, one of the things that I see in America is certainly a crisis of faith. People don't know what to believe in right now. There's a lot of what people call fake news out there, right? And so people tend to step back um, from putting all their chips in one basket right now. And, and within the church, this has always been somewhat of a challenge, right? Where we, we come to church, we maybe read our Bible sometimes, maybe we somewhat invest in the family of God, but we're not ready to say we are all in, right? Uh, we might go through the motions, but not truly believe. And in fact, this isn't just a Christian issue or an American issue. This is a human issue. I remember a few years ago, I was walking with uh, some, some of our international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance in, uh, in Jordan. And Jordan is a very closed off country to the movement of Christianity. And, and so I was just, I was asking the question, what is God doing here? And, and where do you see movement? And how is there hope for a movement of the gospel in Jordan? And he thought for a minute and he said, you know what? Uh, here's what I see. I see a lot of young people who don't have any idea what it means to be a Muslim. I see a lot of young people who um, have learned uh, uh, Islam throughout their life and they've gone to school and they've been taught these different things, but they don't actually know what it means. And, and I said, well, what do you call somebody like that? And he says, I would call it like a nominal Muslim. And he said, this is everywhere. These are people that just want a good job. They want to find, you know, someone to marry and build a, a family and have a good life and, and just die happy, right? That's, that's kind of their goal. And, and mixed in all of that is, is this faith, right, that they've been handed uh, by generations before them. And I thought that was really interesting that for the movement of the gospel, one of his greatest hopes as one of our international workers, is that there is something called nominal Islam where these people don't truly know what they believe and they haven't really put their faith into this particular religion. 
Now, here is our side of the coin. There's something I would call nominal Christianity. And it has been one of the greatest assets to the enemy. And I'll say this, right now, it's being wiped out. Throughout this season we find ourselves in, nominal Christianity, I think, is, a, is an incredible asset to the enemy, to, to, to someone that would want to seek and kill and destroy and take from us what God is trying to do in our lives. And throughout this journey that we find ourselves in, it's actually being wiped out. Fewer and fewer people are saying, hey, I'm a Christian. It's getting more and more difficult to say, I'm a Christian. In fact, right now, if you want to be consistent in, uh, in community and in the disciplines of our faith, it's going to take a lot of energy and effort. And so in so many ways, our faith and our doubts are being revealed right now. So there's this point in uh, Jesus's life where he actually began to work miracles. He was in Jerusalem And the crowds were growing, and um, here's what he says to the crowd in John 2. He says, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus himself knows the heart of humanity. And as these crowds began to grow, as people began to follow Jesus— uh, he, he, he knew their hearts. He knew that they were actually simply after a show. They weren't ready for a savior. And I wonder for you and, and for me today, like, do you relate to that? Do you understand that? Jesus knows our hearts. He knows it when we find ourselves in this kind of mediocre, not fully committed type of faith, right? It says he knew what was in man. In other, in other words, Jesus can't be fooled. Like, you can fool me. You can fool your wife or your husband. You can fool your kids. You might fool people in the church, but ultimately Jesus cannot be fooled. And when he looked at this crowd of people who were gathering around him for for the show, for the miracles, right? It was great entertainment. He started to see what they actually had faith in. And so I'm going to ask it again. What is your faith in today, right? And what does it look like to have faith as a doubter? Is there room for people who have doubts in the family of God. And I'll tell you, I sure hope so. Because if there's not room for people with doubts in the family of God, there is no room for me. And so I want you to just take a self-assessment real quick and just ask yourself, what is my faith really in? I mean, is it in God? Do I trust in him? Do I actually put my life in his hands? Or in some ways, has God sort of been my entertainment? Has the church sort of been a a way to kill a little bit of time and, and just build some friendships, right? Have I turned God into sort of my errand boy to do the things that I want him to do instead of my savior, my Lord, the one who is the leader of my life? And that's a very challenging thing to consider, but this is really what Jesus wants us to do, I think, through this, this parable as we talk about faith. And so here's the question I think Jesus is answering through this parable is this, what is real faith? What does it mean to have real faith? This is really important because if we get this wrong as a church, what we're going to do is we're going to convince people that they're part of the family of God when they just simply want the fringe benefits, right? They, they want to kind of enjoy some of the, the things of the family of God instead of actually being part of the family of God. And so I've kind of touched on this already, but what is real faith? The, the really obvious answer is this, to have faith is to be faithful. That's it. To have faith is to be faithful. 
That's how you know that you're not part of this nominal Christianity crowd is that you're actually faithful to the things that you say that you have faith in. You know, when I decided to ask my wife Amanda to marry me, I sat down and had the talk with her parents. Um, You know, I was actually, I was sweating bullets. I remember I had this tissue in my hands. I, I think I still have it somewhere. And I tore the thing to pieces. I was so nervous talking to her parents, asking permission to marry her. And as I had this conversation with them, it was a really important conversation because they had some questions, right? They wanted to know, how are you going to, uh, to support this girl? Like, what is it going to look like to care for her? Do you, do you have a job right now? Where are you going to live? Are you going to have a healthy marriage? What does a healthy marriage actually look like? Notice they didn't simply want me to, to say, well, I believe that we're going to be married. They didn't simply want a, a commitment to, to say that I'm married. What they wanted to know was, was this young man going to be faithful to our daughter? That's an important question. One day I'm going to have that conversation with a young man, right? I'm already preparing myself for that moment. But to have faith is to be faithful. And the only way to be faithful, hear this, is to believe that Jesus is enough. Just the same in marriage, right? When you get married to someone, you're saying yes to one person and no to every other person in the world. And the same is true that when we have faith in Jesus, we're saying yes to Jesus and no to everything else in the world. And the only way that you will ever be faithful to Jesus is to believe deep in your soul that Jesus is actually enough. And this is so important because when you believe that Jesus is enough, you know what? Your spouse doesn't have to be. When you believe that Jesus is enough, you can forgive your father or your mother for their shortcomings because they don't have to be. When you believe that Jesus is enough, you know what? This is so important right now. You don't have to be right. You don't have to be right in the conversation, in the argument, in the the political realm, whatever's going on right now. You don't have to be right because Jesus is enough. It's amazing how when Jesus is enough, we begin to naturally walk into faithfulness. And this is what Jesus is describing right now as he talks about faith. And so before we even get into the parable, there are a few terms that we really need to define before we can move forward. So the first is this, what is biblical belief? How does the Bible describe actual belief? What does it mean to believe? First John 2, verse 3 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, so this is really important for you to understand that biblical belief is a life-changing belief. It's the kind of belief that actually transforms the way that you live. Maybe you were presented with John 3.16 at one point, or, uh, you know, you, you tossed up a little prayer at a, at a camp one, one time, or, you know, maybe at church one day you, you felt some, some emotion and some remorse for sin, and, you know, you kind of tossed up like a, I don't want to go to hell prayer, right? We talked about hell last week, and, and, and maybe you had some understanding of God, but, man, there was no real change in your life. That is not biblical belief. Biblical belief is life-changing belief. I told you about when I asked my wife to marry me. Well, uh, a few years later, she came to me one day and she says, Honey, I'm pregnant. And guess what? I believed her, which is, which is good, right? And, and guess what? I believed her and everything changed. 
The way I spent my money changed. The way I spent my time changed. The way I was planning my future changed. Everything, and I mean everything, changed after that moment because I believed that something had happened. You see, life-changing belief in Jesus, it changes things. It, it can't help but change things because it's what you actually believe. Here's the second term I want to define. Is what does it mean to have faith? We just talked about that a little bit, but Hebrews 11.1 one, And I love what it says in the message translation. It says, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. So how do you know that somebody has a handle on what what they can't see? Well, based on the way that they act, based on the way that they live, right? And this is really important. We already said this, that true faith is is faithfulness. But I think the church has convinced itself that true faith is is something when when somebody doesn't have any more questions. Uh, Whoever worships the loudest, whoever's most passionate, right? That person is the one who has the most faith. But here's what you need to know. Is that I can get up here and preach a powerful vision and have zero faith. I can speak the words of God. I can, I can spout off scriptures and have zero faith. I think what we've done is we've turned faith into an intellectual assent. It's just this intellectual assent. Like if you can convince yourself and be most passionate and most optimistic, then you're someone of great faith. Here's an example. Let's say someone is sick. Someone in your ACF outpost or a family member is sick. If somebody is sick, it's a step of faith to pray for God to heal them. It's a good thing to do. I'd encourage you to do that. At the end of your time here today, get together. If anybody is sick, gather around them. Put your hands on them, right? As scriptures talk about laying hands on people if they are sick and praying for God to heal them. That's a great thing to do. It takes faith to do that. But I think what the church has done is convince itself that you really have faith if you believe God will heal them. That you really have faith if you believe that God will heal them right, right, right then. And so, so faith is almost based on your ability to imagine God healing. Or once again, how optimistic you are that God will do what you want him to do. I just want to, to just lighten the load for some of you. That is not a biblical description of faith, right? We cannot manipulate God into moving, into doing what we want him to do. That is not the definition of faith. Imagine somebody else. Somebody who stops reading the word, stops being in community, stops praying, stops listening to God, stops being generous, but believes with his whole heart that God's going to bless his life. Is that faith? Well, obviously not, right? Like, but based on what most people believe, oh, that person, as long as he believes in his heart, as long as he's optimistic, as long as he really thinks God's going to do it, man, that's someone of great faith. I would say that is someone with zero faith. I'd say that's somebody with self-deception, right? Somebody that doesn't understand themselves very well. They don't realize that they have lost faith. So this is so important that you understand this, is that biblical faith is measured in obedience. If faith, having faith, 
is to be faithful, then biblical faith is measured not in your ability to convince yourself that God will heal that person that you're, you're praying for or, or, or in your ability to just think, man, God's going to bless my money. He's going to bless my finances. He's going to bless me with a new job. Biblical faith is measured in your willingness to do exactly what he's already called you to do. That's what it means to have biblical faith. Some people have lots of questions. Others don't have many questions. Some people are very optimistic and they always think the, uh, the, the bright side and they see the, the best in a situation. Other people see the worst in a situation, right? Once again, faith isn't head knowledge. It's not convincing yourself that God will do what you want him to do. It's simply obedience. So hear me, optimistic Christians are not more faithful. Just like people who are a little pessimistic are not less faithful. And you see this. So I, I saw this with my children. Um, we used to do a bit of a faith test every time we went to the pool. And if you're a parent, you've done this a hundred times where they go over to the edge of the pool and you stand in the pool. And before they can even swim, you say, hey, jump to me. And what was really interesting is uh, my kids had three different distinct responses to this moment, this test of faith that I put them through. Three responses. One of my children... The youngest, my boy Grayson, he was fearless. I said, jump to me. He's already flying in the air, right? He couldn't swim. If I wasn't in there, he would have drowned and been gone, right? But he was just like, all right, I'll do it. He jumps in. Well, um, my middle child, Avriana, when I said, hey, jump to daddy, she was scared and she might cry a little bit and she'd kind of hesitate and she wasn't so sure. But finally, she would, she would jump to daddy, Cadence, my oldest daughter, when we did the faith test, the very first time, she sat on the edge. She started crying. And the more I tried to encourage her to do it, the more she got away from the pool, right? She was more convinced that dad was not going to catch her. There was nothing safe about any of this. And she was going to have nothing to do with it. The more I pushed, the less willing she was to take the jump. And I actually believe that we all have the same type of responses when it comes to God. How do you respond when tested in a moment? Are you willing to move? Or do you find yourself sitting on the edge of the, of, of the pool saying, God, I'm not so sure you're going to do it. I'm not so sure that you're going to be faithful. So I'm choosing not to be faithful. So the third thing is this. The third word is doubt. So is doubt the opposite of faith? That's an important question to work through. And that's where I want to get today. Is doubt the opposite of faith? James 2.17 says this, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? So as long as faith results in action, as long as biblical belief that you have results in obedience, then it is real. It's alive in you. If faith by itself without works is dead, then faith with obedience, faith with the things that God is calling you to do, with those things, is a living and active faith. So the op opposite of faith is not doubt, but disobedience. If, if faith without works is dead, then the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's disobedience. It's sitting on the edge of the pool and, and crossing your arms and saying, I'm just not doing it, God. I'm not willing to move. Some of you would say, well, what about, you know, that, that middle daughter experience where, you know, we're on the edge and maybe we're, we're a little upset and we're crying. We're thinking about making the move, but we're not going to, and we're not ready to do it. And then finally we, we do it. Is that to have faith? And the answer is yes. 
Yes. Honestly, that describes my entire life. Every good thing God has called me to do, every big thing that he's asked me to step into, I've been like that. Okay, I'm not so sure. Um, man, I'm, I'm a little scared. I got some, some questions. I'm not, I'm not willing to do it quite yet, but then, then I just, I do it. I choose to be obedient and trust that if I'm faithful, God will be faithful. And I want you to hear that today. God will always be faithful. The question is, will you? Will you be faithful to the things he's asked you to walk into? So the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's disobedience. In the same way, like right now, I think if you're a leader, leading a business, um, leading a team, maybe it's leading a squadron right now, whatever it is, whatever you're leading right now, um, your leadership is being tested. Your courage is being tested. And so here's the deal. Courage, one thing we know about leadership is that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the, anybody that is a courageous leader has had fear. They've had doubts. They've had things in their minds that, that try to convince them not to move forward. And yet in the end, to be, to be courageous is to do what you know is right in the moment. What's best for your team, what's best for the people that are following you. The same is true when it comes to biblical faith. There's two kinds of doubt that you might have. Two kinds of doubt. The first I would call debilitating doubt. And debilitating doubt is a lack of faith. You can have a debilitating doubt and, and you just, you don't move. You sit on the edge. And that's, so that's my oldest daughter's response to the faith test. She sits on the edge, crosses her arms. She's like, I'm just not doing it. I'm not moving. And, and there've been moments in my life where God said, move. And I said, nope, I have debilitating doubt. It's gonna keep me from walking faithfully into the thing that you want me to do. And that is a moment we do not have faith. That is not a real faith, Right? So that's, that's one kind of doubt. The other kind of doubt I would call dependent doubt. This is a presence of faith. So faith is evident with my doubt, and yet I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step forward. I'm going to do what God asks me to do, even though I have fear, I have concerns, I have questions, but I'm actually going to move and be faithful to the things that he calls me to do. This is so important that you understand this because I, there's a lot of people that don't want to put their, put their faith in Jesus because they've got some doubts. There's a lot of people that would say, I'm not ready to call myself a Christian because I've got some doubts. And friend, hear me on this. If, if none of us would become Christians because we had doubts, there would be no Christians because we all have doubts. We have simply chosen to step out and to be faithful to a God that we believe will be faithful to us. And I honestly believe that Jesus is always going to be faithful. It's why he came. It's why he, he came to earth. It's why he died on a cross. That was his way of saying, I will always be faithful to you. Will you be faithful to me? I love Jesus says like, hey, to understand this whole concept of faith, you're going to have to actually look inside of yourself and be aware of who you are as a person. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In verse 5, it says, The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So he says, Hey, as we get into this conversation of faith, the first, the first case study is how well do you forgive? Because it takes a lot of faith in the power and the presence of Jesus and the work of the cross to actually let some of these things go. And I love that. I love the apostles are like, You know what? It's going to take a little more faith. It's going to take more than what we can muster, right? That's something, uh, what they're essentially saying is we're not ready for that. 
We're going to cross our arms on the edge of the pool. Until you give us some kind of bigger faith, some kind of supernatural faith, I'm not so sure we're ready to forgive like you're calling us to forgive. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, so the first thing I think we see in this text is this. God is extremely faithful through our small faith. They were saying, we need bigger faith. God, some kind of uh, huge supernatural faith. That's what it's going to take to do the things that you're asking us to do. Forgiveness is a big one. And I love that Jesus says this, like, hey, I can do a lot through your weak faith. And, and essentially, no matter how big a faith you think that you have, it's a lot weaker than you realize. And any faith that you have in the end is, is a gift from God himself anyway. Verse 7 says this, Will any one of you who has a servant, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? So the first thing we see is that Jesus works through our weak, small faith. The second thing we see is that our obedience doesn't impress God. And this is really good news for you or, or me when we struggle with pride. We struggle with thinking that we're more than we are because we simply choose to follow Jesus. We do not impress God with our obedience. So in this parable, there's a master and there's a servant. And so here would be a modern translation. would be this. If you were a boss and your employee just did the job he was getting paid to do, would you give him a Hawaii vacation? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. If somebody just did the, the job that they're being asked to do, would you give them a special vacation? No, of course not, right? And so what he's saying is like, hey, you are a follower of Jesus. And so that means that what you do is follow Jesus, right? You have inherited all the good things that come from being part of the family of God. And so, so there's so much to be grateful for. But don't assume that your obedience somehow impresses God. Don't let your obedience turn into some, some kind of expectation of God to do things for you that you want him to do. It would be very easy if we as a church or if you as an individual walked in obedience to become really entitled to the things of God. And I want you to know this, that you are most vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy and the temptation to become proud when you choose to be obedient to God. The moment you finally jump in the water, the moment you finally choose to do the thing that he asked you to do is the moment that you are most vulnerable to walk into pride, to think that you actually conjured up within yourself the ability to take the jump. And that's the thing, what we see throughout the biblical narrative is that even the ability to jump was a gift from God. That our faith was even handed to us, however small it may be. It's something that God gave us as a gift. So it's nothing that we should have pride on in at all. So verse 10 says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. That's a different response, right? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So this is, this is the posture I want us to take as a church. This is the posture I want to take as, a, as an individual is when I choose to follow Jesus and I step out in faith, I want to have the posture of, hey, I simply did what you asked me to do, God. The rest is in your hands. And that just keeps us from, from in the end, taking pride in the success, right? Or, or beating ourselves up if it doesn't go the way that we planned. In the end, we were obedient, right? 
And that's the definition of faith. And so we don't have to get caught up in, did I do the right thing? Did I not? Oh, it was struggle. I don't know if it was right when it's a struggle. We just have to say, was I obedient? Did I do what he asked me to do? And if I did, I was faithful. I'm simply an unworthy servant. And I love that Jesus models this for us. This is Philippians 2.8. It says, he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So the last thing we see in this text is this. Truly knowing a crucified God will crucify your rights. When we finally get to know Jesus, he is God crucified. God in the flesh. And this is what makes Jesus so different than any other God, any other religion, is that our God comes as a servant to humanity. Every other religion, every other belief says, hey, you exist to serve that God. And certainly when we follow Jesus, we want to serve God. But our God served us first. Our God loved us first. Our God died for us first. And so what about you? Once again, is your faith real? Is your belief real? Does it result in a changed life? changed passions? Are you willing to push through the the discomfort or the work it might take to be faithful to God right now? Because what this text is saying is that that real faith, big or small, that leads to obedience, this is saving faith. You see, salvation is when we choose to be trusting and trustworthy to God. Salvation is when we choose to be trusting to God and trustworthy. We trust God for who he is, for what he's done, the fact that he will always care for us and, and do what he says he will do. He will always be faithful to catch us. Salvation comes when we know that's true and then we choose to be trustworthy to that God. And let's acknowledge this. God will always be more trustworthy than we will. And I know that. If you're listening to this and you're like, man, I want to have real faith, but I know that throughout my life I haven't been that trustworthy. God understands that. This is where grace comes in is that you can have those moments where, man, you blow it. You don't jump when he says jump and God says, okay, we're gonna get it next time because he knows that your heart is to be faithful. But for other people who are maybe watching online, other people in our country over the past uh, past years who have found themselves involved with churches and and doing the things of Christianity, I'm just, I, I fear that so many people are nominal Christians who don't truly have faith in Jesus. And so I just, I want you to take a moment. Look at your life honestly. Look at the way you spend your day. Look at the things that you think about, that you obsess about. Does it center on the kingdom of God? If it doesn't, it may be a time right now to reassess your faith and and make a commitment to walk forward in true, real faith. And I want you to know our community is watching. The city needs to see people who have a real faith Uh, I was reading this week in his book, Googling for God, which I just love the title. Seth Stevens wrote this. It says this. It has been a bad decade for God, at least so far. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Porn searches are up 83%. For heroin, it's 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Not good. The top Google search, including the word God, is God of War, a video game. So our community, right, The world around us is looking for something real and authentic, right? And I want you to know this. Authentic faith is infectious to the world. The world can't help but follow it. They'll see it in you when it's real, and it will infect the world around you. So authentic faith is infectious 
to the world. I was out fishing with some friends. We actually do a preaching retreat every year where we plan out the things that we're going to talk about for the next year. And uh, Angela Randall was on the trip. And Angela is just one of my favorite people because she's so infectious. And so watch this clip real quick as she catches a 35-pound king salmon. that clip. Maybe you saw that on my social media this week, but um, if you weren't laughing along with her, you do not have a pulse. I'm telling you, uh, you just can't help but be infected by that kind of laughter, that kind of excitement. And this is honestly what authentic faith does. And so as you read this story, the feeling may be, man, uh, I want a bigger faith. And Jesus says, hey, your little faith can do so much when you simply give yourself to God in obedience. And in the end, as you walk through that and you walk through life in obedience, he is going to bless that. And so I wanna encourage you to step out this week in a big way in faith. I don't know what that looks like for you right now, but as you do, once again, our community is watching, the city is watching, the world is watching the Christians. And they're looking for something that's real. And the way that you will know that your faith is real is that the people around you will be infected by it. You're going to start seeing people ask some questions. You're going to start seeing people leaning in to conversation about who you are and what you believe because authentic faith is infectious faith and it will infect the world. So ACF, let's step that up. Let's choose to step out this season and and choose to believe that God will catch us in the end, that he will be faithful if we are faithful. And so how is it that you need to step out this week as a, as a believer in Jesus? How is it that you need to step out this week as a mom or as a dad? How is it that we as a church need to step out? That's what we as leaders are praying to do. But this week, know this, in your weak faith, God will use it for incredible things. And so in your outposts, I want you to just ask a question right now. And it's just this, what's the biggest moment that you chose to follow God even though you were full of doubt? I want you to just tell a story. Look back at your life and what is the biggest moment in your life that you chose to follow God even though you were full of doubt? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you bless us despite our weak, small faith. And that in the end, God, we don't need a bigger faith. We just need an authentic faith. God, so we ask you to uh, show us in what ways we have believed that we had faith, but we really didn't because we're not being faithful. And in what ways, God, do we need to trust you and simply step off of the ledge and believe that you will always catch us? So God, I pray you make that clear to us as individuals and that we as a church would walk forward uh, faithfully believing in what you call us to do. In all of this, God, I pray we would never become proud or boastful in ourselves because in the end, God, we are simply your unworthy servants. And Jesus, thank you so much for modeling what it looks like to be uh, humble and to come in the form of a servant 
Thank you that you are the crucified God. And God, I pray in that you would just crucify our pride and that we'd come to you honestly and openly with our doubts. And God, thank you so much that you're big enough for our questions, that it doesn't intimidate you when we have our concerns and we're not so sure that you're gonna catch us. But in the end, Father, we wanna be the kind of people that choose to follow you, to have a saving, honest, true, authentic faith that leads to obedience. That's my prayer for myself, my prayer for my friends who are watching. We love you, Jesus, and we pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for watching this message from ACF Church. Uh, We hope it's encouraged you and challenged you to be more like Jesus and to walk with him in a closer and more profound way. If you'd like to give to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so at the link on the screen or at acfak.org. We love you and we'll see you next week.